I hope you're still there. Philippians 1, as Pastor Nathan just read, we are continuing in our series as we've been going through uh, the book of Philippians, uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to this church. Uh, This is part number six. We have spent the last several weeks going through uh, the bulk of the middle portion of chapter 1. We've spent a lot of time on those middle 15 or so verses. And rightly so, uh, Paul packs in a lot of stuff. <laughs> He's packing in a lot of truth in a short amount of words, and uh, it affords a lot of material for preachers to preach, so that's good. Um, but <laughs> beyond just being uh, a chapter that is full of just sermon material, if you will, I think one of the things that I've been struck by is just how uh, open Paul is with the fact that this is his heart. Uh, Philippians is, we've said before that Corinthians, especially 2 Corinthians, is a very personal letter for Paul, but it's almost a personal letter in the sense that he's almost defending his apostleship uh, to many who had questioned, uh, who uh, questioned his authority in, in, in many cases. This one is personal in a different respect, as we've noted a, 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 a already several times, just how it's personal in the fact that he's writing to some very dear friends. Uh, he's writing as a brother in arms, if you will. He's writing as a, a fellow laborer. In fact, he, he refers to himself and those that are with him as co-laborers for the truth later on in this letter. And uh, I think that that sense of camaraderie that Paul gives in this letter is, is where we see his true heart. This is a joy for Paul. He's writing to fellow churchgoers and fellow church members and fellow church planters about the joy that they can have in Jesus Christ. And he's sharing everywhere this, this, this glorious cause that he is a part of and that they too are a part of. This furtherance of the gospel. The advance of this wonderful good news that Christ is king and he, the king, implants his joy to us. I think very surely that you can't read Philippians, you can't really open the book of Philippians without being abundantly aware of what Paul's life was all about. Uh, He's said in other places, you know, uh, I would desire to know nothing more to you than Christ and him crucified. Here he's sort of uh, putting that into practice, if you will. He's sort of uh, showing you what that looks like. In all places, he's exampling Christ. That in all places, he knows both how to abase and abound. That's later on. But regardless, he's, he, he's making sure that everyone knows, I'm about Christ. He's my life. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, as we uh, looked at last time. And even he says in the first one that he's a servant of Jesus Christ. He's, he's captive to this Christ. And I think, though, uh, what I love about Philippians, as we've been sort of trying to draw out, and we've been squeezing these verses, if you will, to try and wring as much joy as truth out of them, that's what he, I think, is delivering to this church, but also to you and I, uh, thousands of years later, is just that there is no greater joy in this life than to be captured by the gospel of Christ. That's life's truest Greatest joy to have your own life apprehended by the life of Christ. That's, I think, what he's articulating through all these varied ways. Christ's life is our truest joy. And it is our truest joy to have our lives captured by that same life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
As we've, just to keep us sort of in coherence with what's going on in this particular chapter, we've said that chapter one is about Christ as our life of joy. And we've said in verses 1 through 11 that this life of joy is able to foster the joy of Christian community. And in that middle section, which we spent a lot of time on, we noted how this Christ, our joy, fosters the joy of Christian thanksgiving. And how, uh, how deeply the gospel is embedded into those moments and seasons. And here at the close, verses 27 through 30, these last four verses, I think we see Paul introduce the joy of Christian confidence. The joy of Christian confidence. And I say introduce because uh, I think what you have here is the first 26 verses of chapter 1 are just really a long introduction, if you will. They're sort of like a long, like, giving you context for where he's coming from. And he's, he's uh, relaying what's been on his heart lately. And now here in verse 27, we kind of get into the first sort of inklings of what he really wants to talk about. And in fact, I would say these four verses provide sort of the thesis that he moves to expound and elaborate on through the next uh, three chapters. It's not an overstatement to say that this is, this is the bulk of what he wants to talk about. And I think we'll see that in a moment. That these are the ver- these kind of give us all of his topics. If you if you want a rundown of what Paul aims to talk about in chapters two, three, and four, just look at these verses. They give us exactly that. In fact. I think the first phrase, kind of, of verse 27, gives us his sincerest thought for this church. As he says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. This is his prayer. This is his aspiration for this church. That this church at Philippi, the Philippians who are, are, are members of this body of Christ, it is, it is his truest prayer that they would exhibit, as he says, Christian conversation, which becomes, which suits the gospel of Christ at all times and in all walks of life. And again... You might have a different translation, and that might be good in this sense, only because conversation doesn't just mean what we say. It means lifestyle. It means our conduct. It actually is most closely associated to the word citizenship. Only let your citizenship be as it suits, as it is worthy of the gospel. This is, you, you might have a lot of verses come to mind. I think of Ephesians 4 and 5, where he talks about walking worthy of the Lord Jesus. I think essentially what he's saying to this church and to us thousands of years later is this. You, right now, are citizens of heaven, so live like it. It's a very succinct truth, but it has an amazing and far-reaching implications. That right now, as we are here in 2021, we, if we believe in that blood-bought atonement of Jesus Christ, we are citizens of heaven. We have been, as he says later to the church of Colossians, or the church of Colossae, that at the moment of faith, we have been delivered from the powers of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Colossians 1.13 is where he says that. That's, that's, that's our identity. 
We are citizens of heaven. And you could say as we walk this life of faith, this life of, uh, of Christians, as we are in the church, we have a dual citizenship in the sense that we are, we are here on this earth, but we are really members of the kingdom of heaven. And I think here Paul is what he's articulating is just what it means uh, for him is the fact that joyous living was spent walking worthy or that phrase is as it becometh that citizenship. What does it look like to be a citizen of heaven walking roaming this earth? Well I think it looks like three things. (laughs) I think there's three characteristics in these four verses where Paul is articulating what exactly it means to walk worthy, to have our conversation as it becomes the gospel. And I want to walk through those this evening. I think you'll find them there. There. So first of all, uh, in verse 27, I think the first characteristic of this heavenly citizenship is the duty of unity. Notice verse 27 again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This first characteristic of gospel citizenship is plainly unity. The, the, the uniting of otherwise separate people into one common cause. And this is what he desires. You notice as he says, the only thing that I desire, I want to hear uh, of your reputation, uh, that you would be, your reputation would be of such that you were known for being of one spirit and one mind. That people would know about the church of, at Philippi and knowing how they stand fast, how they stand firm and persevere. For the truth of the good news of Christ with, as he says, one spirit or a singular, uh, actually I love how this could be translated elsewhere, a singular animating principle. (laughs) The thing that makes this church active and alive, the thing that makes them vibrant, the thing that makes them and gives them vitality, that's they all have a singular common animating principle. (laughs) And a singular intention, a singular, as he says, mind, that you stand fast, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is Paul's prayer for these, these believers here. And, he's, he, and I love, though, the picture of that, those words, striving together. It literally means wrestling they're, they're engaging in conflict and contention for the sake of the truth. And they're doing so, they're wrestling together for the sake of this common cause. I love how Paul is picturing this and how he is making sure that, that this is what we ought to be known for. As citizens of heaven, one of the singular ways we show off, if you will, the, one of the singular ways that we exhibit our dual citizenship is the fact that we come together for the singular cause of Christ alone. This is what sort of doesn't make sense. <laughs> Especially to those outside the church. That those who could be so different in their personal walks of life could find a uniting hope. A singular animating principle, if you will, in Christ. What an amazing thing. (laughs) Because did you know too that it's not just us here in this room. That because we are part of the church, we are part of 
the church at large, the, the quote, universal church. So other churches where, though, where there are members in their congregations worshiping and praising the Lord and who by faith know that they have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb, they are your brothers and sisters too. <laughs> and many uh, of the people who have gone before us, you by faith are in the same family as those who have gone before us, the saints who have passed on already. That to me is one of the most amazing things. That we are united together for the same common cause. Isn't it cool to open your hymnal and you find that you're singing hymns that have been around for hundreds of years? And to think about who sang them a long time ago? And we're still singing them. We're still singing those old truths. But even more profoundly, that we're reading a letter... That was given to a church in the first hundred years of, or the, the, of the turn of those millennia. It's just a letter. But it's a letter inspired by the Spirit meant to live on throughout the ages and to serve churches. This is the amazing thing about the New Testament. It's mainly made up of letters given to churches that they would read. That they would read in a public sphere much like this. They would have one singular elder stand up and read it. And they would be blessed by the words of these apostles. Knowing that they weren't just words from men. They were words from God himself. I think it's amazing the, the lineage, the heritage that we are connected to by faith. And here he's, I think, leaning into that, that you by faith stand fast, stand firm, wrestle together for the faith of the gospel. It's another than this conviction that Paul, I think, is showing forth without really articulating. Again, as we noted a couple of weeks ago, one of the interesting things about Philippians is he doesn't get into doctrine. It's not like Colossians where he talks about the doctrine of Christ. If you read Colossians 1, he's literally talking about that doctrine. The doctrine of Christ, who he is and what he's done and all the things that pertain to that. Or like Romans. If if we want a doctrinal letter, just open the book of Romans. And you'll be hit in the face with it. He's very clear about what he's doing. This, as we've said, is a personal letter. He doesn't, he kind of already assumes the doctrines that they should know. Such is why I think he's saying here, the faith of the gospel. He kind of just passes over that. It's the conviction of the truth of what? That Christ is the, that Jesus is the Christ. Again, as we've said last week and the weeks past, that's the thing that sticks out to me, that jumps out to me in this letter. That the name Christ is mentioned over 40 times in four short chapters. He's assuming, he's kind of presuming that they know what the gospel is. It is the fact that that Jesus guy, that he that uh, was going around Galilee performing miracles and preaching, that he is not just a man, he's not just a good teacher, he's not just a good humanitarian. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God who came to this earth. And took on sin and then was buried because of that sin and then raised again to new life. Thereby defeating sin and the power of the grave. 
This is the gospel. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15, remember, that um, he articulates the gospel in a, in a short couple verses. This is the conviction that he's saying ought to identify us as citizens of heaven. This, this unifying spirit, this duty of unity, knowing that we are all blood-bought sinners of Jesus Christ. When you think about it that way, I think, I can't, I just get amazed by it. That ages ago they were preaching this gospel and here we are still championing its truth. And God is still securing a remnant. He's still forging his church. As we've been saying on Sunday mornings especially, but I think it's especially true as you see these letters. As these churches are forming, it can get isolating. All Imagine the persecution that many of these early churches felt. As this movement called Christianity was taking fire. As it was catching fire and also it sort of causing a lot of fires too. Fires of suffering and adversity. And thinking about how lonely it must have been for many of these churches who weren't able to rely on help from other churches. Paul's prayer is, is saying, stand firm in this truth. Know that it's true. Stand in it. Wrestle for its sake. And here he's saying, only let your conversation be as it suits the gospel. And how do we do that? Standing fast. Functioning as this bride of Christ in unified cause. This you would probably likely know, is the theme that is very much expanded upon in chapter 2, which I can't wait to get to. This is what he spends the bulk of Philippians 2 sort of enlarging on, but I think this is the mantra, the, the, the motto, if you will, if you wanted to sort of grab on to a little catchphrase that which every church should have, it's this, striving together for the gospel. We make a singular stand not on other things, not on minor things, not on opinions or preferences, not on things that are, quote, gray area. We stand on the very deliberate and determinate truth that Jesus is the Christ. I think without that united cause, a church is very quickly going to fracture and is really quickly going to fall. Churches that are bound together by a pastor's hobby horse, by the things that he wants to champion, by the things that he likes, by the, his preferences and things like that. Those are churches that are quickly going to be disbanded. You know what keeps people together? Not my opinions. This book that you have in front of you. The truth of this gospel and our fighting for it, our, and even in our own lives, fighting against our own spirits. <laughs> if we become enamored by some other objective, we are going to find ourselves on divergent paths. And what's the truth of parallel lines? If they get off by one degree, they will very quickly go off in very different places. And if we get enamored by something other than the gospel and make that our, quote, hobby horse, we will find ourselves on different trajectories. I think that's why Paul's burden here is to remind and remind and remind and instill and press into what? Christ 
alone. Every single page that, Christ, that, that Paul writes, he's championing that message. From his testimonies in the book of Acts, in all of his epistles. And I would say that I pray that that is, that that is becoming known of me. I don't want to have anything known about me other than what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. That I desire to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what keeps us parallel, if you will. That's what keeps us united. That's what keeps us, as he says here, standing firm and standing fast. I think this, though, this joy of Christian confidence is not just uh, sort of uh, advanced by this duty of unity. I think it's also the necessity of fidelity. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. Look at verse 27 and 28, though. Uh, just look at them together as he says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. I like here that Paul confesses his own sort of inability to know the future. Even though Paul was an apostle, one with, uh, he was you know, imbued with the wisdom of God to preach this inspired truth. He is not sort of trying to make any, any, any fancy claims that he knows what's going to happen, even with his own life. He says, I am striving and praying that I will be able to come and see you, but I may be absent <laughs> I may be detained. I'm, I'm not exactly sure how the future is going to pan out. And he says, but regardless of whether I'm going to be with you in body or with you in spirit, whether I'm with you or whether I'm absent, I want to know. <laughs> I want to hear of, as he says, your affairs. <laughs> he says that the gospel imbues you. It instills in you, church, the ability, the faith to remain undeterred by life's unexpected changes. <laughs> Even in the face of adversaries, those who were totally opposed to them. He says, I want to hear of your affairs, either in my presence or in my absence, hear that you're standing firm. You see, this church, even in the face of these adversaries, these enemies, or in the tedium, we could say, of daily obstacles, they can approach either with, uh, with unflustered faith, we could say. Whether uh, you're expecting me to come or whether I am not able to come at all, I want to know that, and I want to hear of the fact that in nothing you are terrified. <laughs> hear of your fidelity to Christ. Whether things pan out the way you want them to or not. <laughs> my dad, I'm going to steal a quote from my dad. He's, this is not unscriptural, but he has added to the Beatitudes by one, one attitude. He says, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be bent out of shape. <laughs> and I think that's true when it comes to handling what life throws your way. <laughs> Unexpected things. Things going wrong with our plumbing. <laughs> Things are going wrong with our cars. Unexpected bills. <laughs> Unexpected changes in our cell phone coverage. <laughs> which seems to happen a lot. Calls being dropped or whatever. 
There's always something unexpected that comes into our life. And there's, there's many times when we are given to, quote, being terrified by them, being frustrated, being flustered, being distressed by these unexpected and unforeseen things popping into our lives. We don't plan for those things to happen. We don't plan for our septic tank to just totally go out. <laughs> that happened to us in Florida. And I know it's happening to you and Pastor Nathan. We had so many troubles with our septic tank in Florida. It was the worst. We ended up having to replace the entire drain field in our whole house. That was, oh, I'm not going to talk to you about that. That was terrible. That was bad memories. Um, but regardless, we don't, who, who plans for that? <laughs> I think... Though that this idea, blessed are the flexible, blessed are those who are evidencing fidelity to Christ. Yes, even when plans don't go according to plan. I think this is what Paul is, is, this is getting at the heart of Paul's counsel. Whether I come to you or whether I am not able to come to you. Are you standing firm and standing together for the faith of the gospel? What do you do when life doesn't go your way? (laughs) When your plans get totally changed? You know that perfect afternoon that you planned? (laughs) Whatever that looks like for you. And then that one thing comes up and everything else has to just get thrown out the window. (laughs) You wanted to just sit and read. (laughs) That would be my perfect afternoon. Just sit and read for hours and just enjoy a good book. (laughs) With a nice big cup of coffee. And then our plans get frustrated. They get exasperated. Paul's charge to this church, I think, rings true for us. Whether your plans come to fruition or whether they are changed, I want to hear of your affairs in that in nothing you are terrified, in nothing you are distressed. You're standing firm on the cause of Christ, on the truth of Christ, on the fact that he is the Christ, because that's what doesn't change even when our plans do. (laughs) God's plans and intentions are, are, are never uh, thrown off course. Therefore, we can evidence fidelity even in those unnerving moments of life when things don't go our way. Which brings me lastly to, I think, the third characteristic excuse me, of this heavenly citizenship is not just the duty of unity and the necessity of fidelity, but the dignity of adversity. The dignity of adversity. Notice verse 28. As Paul says, "...in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation." And that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me, and now here to be in me. I think here, this is one of the most resonant themes and truths in the whole entire Christian life. It's precisely that the gospel... Again, which, as we've been here saying, which instills in the church this joy of Christian confidence. What it does, what that gospel does, is it imparts to you and to me a grace with which we are able to endure adversity with dignity. I think that's what he's here, uh, he's expressing that. How do we handle adversity? How do we handle deep and profound and, and pointed suffering? That's a theme which 
has filled a ton of books. And it it fills up this book, especially the, the good book, if you will. Scriptures are brimming with with writers who were wrestling with just that thought. How can I handle adversity? How do we handle suffering? We are all sufferers, so that's why we resonate with that topic so much. <laughs> there is no one in the church who has not suffered for, in some way for being part of the church. Not, we don't always suffer and endure the same types of adversity. We suffer in different ways. But allegiance to Jesus means conflict with the world. Conflict means friction. Friction means adversity. <laughs> it's, it goes with the territory. Allegiance to Jesus means eventually adversity is going to come your way if it hasn't already. And I think, though, that this is what makes these verses, uh, 28 and 29, some of the most astounding, especially in this, this first chapter. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake. You notice he's saying that those adversaries, those opposed to the church on the outside, you might say, find when the church suffers, when those inside of the church are going through adversity, they actually see it as an evident token of perdition. That is, their hardships are signs of their ruin. It's a sign that they've made a mistake. (laughs) So if you endure suffering as being a member of the church, those outside might point to you and say, that's why I don't believe in that stuff. (laughs) That's why I don't believe in all that hocus pocus Jesus magic. Because look at what it gets you. (laughs) It gets you more suffering, more ruin, ruined plans, destroyed ideas and dreams. This is, I think, the common reasoning. And they, they point to that as proof that something's not right. But again, this is the logic of man speaking. Again, notice he says it's the logic of the adversaries to point to suffering as an evident token, a very unmistakable sign of ruin. But again, this is not the logic of the gospel. The logic of the gospel is very much upside down, as we've noted several times. But notice how he says here, this is not what the logic of the gospel is. To them, it's an evident token of perdition. But to you, it is what? An evident token of salvation. And that of God. The church's adversity, the things that come about in our lives, the suffering that we endure is not a sign of ruin. It's a sign of deliverance, of God's deliverance of us. (laughs) Talk about upside down. (laughs) As we've said this morning, God's presence is not found in the absence of suffering, but in the heat of it. In the, in the white hot fires of suffering, that's where Jesus is palpably felt. Literally, in the lives of the Hebrew three, which we talked about last week. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are in the furnace. And who other than greets them there than Malach Yahweh, Jesus himself in the flesh before his incarnation, by the way, which is amazing. A miracle of God who comes down in his form of Jesus. He comes and meets the Hebrew three in the flames. (laughs) It's not just a miracle uh, bringing them out. It's a sign of where we find Jesus most. (laughs) In our suffering. In our weakness. In our dismay. I've I've quoted this before, but as I've I've thought about it, the more I keep thinking about it, the more I'm like, man, this is amazing. (laughs) Martin Luther, he was commenting actually on Psalm 4. But actually, I think this is just the truth that it pervades all of scripture, so I'm just going to quote it here. He says this, Martin Luther does, quote, To know Christ is to know the cross. And to understand God in the midst of the crucifixion of the flesh, this is, des- this is the design of God. This is the will of God. Yea, this is God. And you see, what he's articulating is the fact that knowing God is not just knowing this embodiment of holiness. It's knowing him as clearly seen, as chiefly seen, as predominantly seen in the suffering of the cross. He would later sort of, sort of uh, formulate this this notion and this theological idea as what's called the theology of the cross, which you can look up and research. But it's succinctly, it's the conviction that of, of just this, that suffering is not incompatible with God's redemptive plan, but actually it was its precise purpose. <laughs> that his plan was to bring about redemption through suffering. And it's the idea that when Jesus incarnated, the cross was in view the, higher, in the, in the entire time. In fact, we could even go way before the incarnation. Genesis 3.15. What's the promise? <laughs> that the, the serpent will bruise his heel, but he, the seed of Eve, will crush his head. The bruising of the heel? <laughs> That's what we might call the cross. Because to him who has power over death... Death is just a bruise. (laughs) He crushes sin (laughs) by being the one who can champion over that. And we see our redemption in that moment. The serpent bruising his heel and yet he crushing his head. (laughs) Again, to deny that suffering is part of the Christian life is basically stiff-arming the gospel. Those prosperity preachers that say, if you just have enough faith, if you give me some seed money for whatever thing that I want to do, so I can, you know, fly my my jet to wherever next. They say, if you just do this, you won't suffer anymore. They've not read the Bible. They're not preaching truth. And they don't know Jesus. Because Jesus is known in suffering. Jesus is known in heartache. He's known in heartbreak. He's known in anguish. He's known in agony. He's known in those moments where you just can't. And here he's saying, don't take those as a sign that your faith is of perdition. That your faith is ruined. 
Take it as a sign of your deliverance because that's where he is chiefly known. Jesus was a suffering savior. It's your dignity then to endure adversity just as he did. Notice he says, for unto you it is given. It is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for his sake. It's a gift. Talk about upside down. It's the gift of God that we get to suffer alongside of him. Knowing what? That just this tethers us to Jesus. But also I love verse 30. It tethers us to other believers. Having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. It ties you to the church. To know that you're suffering with. That there's others suffering with you and for you. And alongside of you. I think here, this is the the beauty of this heavenly citizenship. Unity, fidelity, adversity. Knowing that we are free to live joyously in each of these seasons. Because we have the gift of the joy of Christ himself. That's what the gospel gives you. It gives you a person. It gives you Jesus. So when we say Christ is our joy, that's not just this intangible thing. We can affirm that. We can state that. We can believe that because that's what the gospel gives us. It gives us a person, Jesus Christ, who is our joy. We can find our lives in him. As we've said at the beginning, the most joyous part of the Christian life is having our lives captured by him. Captured for his sake, even willing to suffer for his sake. May we know truly that Christ is our joy. And that we can live in joyous Christian confidence. Not because of us, because of this one who is our joy, Christ alone. Let us pray.